Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Now, joining us for his repeat appearance, or first repeat appearance of a few scheduled on the podcast, we've got Lex Pendragon from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter group. Welcome back, Lex. Good to be back. Right, so this week we are discussing a single-issue story. Light reading. Well, short reading. We'll see how light short it reading. is. This is actually Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Issue 36. So in the original Volume 1 numbering, it was Issue 477. Written by J. Michael Straczynski. Penciled by John Armita Jr. Inked by Scott Hanna. Colored by Dan Kemp. Lettered by Wes Abbott and Richard Starkings of Comic Craft with editor Axel Alonso and editor-in-chief Joe Casada. Now, some of those credits, Straczynski, Ramita, Alonso, Casada, I'm convinced of. Hannah and Kemp are credited on the cover. The letters I did have to look up online, because I'm reading in Marvel Digital Unlimited, and the actual credits page is not reproduced in that digital copy. So the original cover date was December 2001. The original release date was October 10th, 2001 which is actually going to be pretty impressive when we start talking about the issue itself and why it exists. Because that's that was a very rapid turnaround. This is story number 44 in the podcast. And I, I kind of get why it's here. When most people think of the fall of 2001, if you're in or near the United States, I'm Canadian myself, and there's no way we could mistake it, there's 9-11. So on September 11, 2001, terrorists attacked the continental United States, destroying the World Trade Center and crashing a couple of other planes in a couple of other areas. I believe one just was aimed at the Pentagon, but didn't do the damage it was supposed to do because of the intervention of some of the people aboard, if memory serves. The the one did hit the Pentagon, and then there was a fourth. There were two planes that hit the World, the World Trade Center. A plane hit the Pentagon doing some damage, and then another plane was aimed at the White House that did not make it and ended up crashing in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, which is about two hours' drive from where I live. Okay. So is that where you were living in 2001 as well? Yes. Yeah. That's uh, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is the other side of the state from that. Well, it, it's more towards the middle of the state, but it's still a ways away. I had good friends who lived in Johnstown, PA, who worked at the military base that responded to everything going on that day. Okay. This is a little resonant. I mean, I'm, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know anyone who was personally involved mm-hmm. in the events of that day, either as, you know, victims or losing someone close to them. Partly because most of my relatives are either here in Western Canada or back in Ireland. So it didn't hit me. Like it would have hit a lot of people, especially since, you know, as a Canadian, an attack on the U.S. isn't an attack on Canada. There's no question about that. But War of 1812 aside, we have been pretty much on the same side. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Canada follows, you know, the lead of the United States in terms of where we go and why we go there. So this was the 9-11 response issue. What happened? I mean, the 9-11 attacks hit, and of course, everyone around the world was reacting. I don't think you could be exposed to media 
and not hear about 9-11 on that day, anywhere on the planet? It was pretty omnipresent. In the United States, it's still, like you said, I mean, just saying 9-11, everybody knows what you're referring to, even though nobody's going to mistake it for the emergency code for a phone call. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember I was actually a grad student in physics at the time, driving to campus, and I turned on the car, started driving, and the first words I heard on the radio was, a plane has just hit the second tower of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. And that was, it's a classic rock station that is, at the time was going to be one of the funniest stations in the city. That was their goal, keep people laughing, keep the music playing. I don't remember any music in the half-hour drive. This was the topic of conversation. I got to campus and, you know, first it was try to hit Google, try to hit the news sites, find out what's going on, get more details. And in Western Canada, we were sitting on one of the high-speed trunk lines connecting us around the world because of the Physics Research Institute we had. My computer was three internet hops from CERN servers out in Switzerland. We had a very, very fast connection for 2001, and it was almost impossible to check text-based email because everyone on the planet was going online to go, what's going on? This was, at that time of day, it was early enough. We still didn't know who was behind it. No one had claimed responsibility yet. Mm-hmm. And everyone was reeling. And Joe Casada, within 24 or 48 hours, was on the phone to Joe Straczynski, who had just taken over Amazing Spider-Man. Issues thir- or issue 30 was his first. Issue 35 had just come out. And Casada said, somebody needs to respond to this right away. I want it to be you. It should be in the Spider-Man book. That's the right place for Marvel's immediate response. And this, I think, was also something that Marvel had to respond to just because one thing I've noticed after the whole tragedy, New Yorkers, because it was the World Trade Center and this is where it happened, felt it much more deeply than everywhere else. Like You'll see it in fiction portrayed as the results of 9-11 in Los Angeles or Canada or the rest of the world, but it's a completely different story when you tell it from a New York point of view. And Marvel's Mm -hmm. offices have been in New York. Marvel's stories are set in New York. This would have had just as profound an effect on any other New Yorker because a lot of people saw it live, and by live, I mean they looked up and saw a plane, not television. Yeah, and apparently Joe Casada is one of the guys who watched the second plane hit through his office window. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is something that, as we'll remember, everyone was responding to. I mean, the Fox's release of 24 got pushed back because it was just terror story way too soon. We're not mm-hmm. doing this two days later. And that was a last minute show. There was a lot of response in a lot of media. And when Casada phoned Straczynski and said, I want you to write about this, Straczynski's response was, there are no words. Like, <laughs> you, you cannot talk about this. It's all emotional. And that phrase ended up sparking the story. So later that afternoon, he went to his trailer because he was also working on TV at the time. I don't remember the exact show. I think with that timeline, it would have been about Jeremiah era, but I could be wrong about that. But he was on set. He went to his trailer and he wrote this script and turned it in. And the Marvel offices, particularly Casada and Alonzo, took it to John Romita Jr., a lot of people enjoy his art, some people don't, but J.R. Jr. does not miss deadlines. 
He's not quite Mark Bagley fast, but he's fast. And they went to him and said, how quickly can you do this? And having been born and raised in New York, Ramita Jr. read the script and was very, very much okay with taking everything on his plate for every publisher. And I don't remember if he was just working with Marvel or not at the time, but his response was, yeah, this is the only job I'm going to play right now. Until it's done, nothing else gets drawn. And in a time when, on average, it takes three to four months to produce a comic, right, from initial pencils to inks through all the various stages, this was written after September 11th and hit the stands, published, printed, bound, everything for October 10th. So it was a less than 30-day turnaround. This is something that they were dedicated to putting out and putting out quickly. I, mean, I knew the story of how the, the conversations went and why it was there. I didn't realize the timelines were that tight because I, I didn't read this on publication. I read it after the fact in trade paperback. I had no idea that the timelines were that tight until I was researching it for this podcast and saw October 10th, 2001, and then went back and checked it from multiple sources. They got it out there and they got it out there fast. Yeah, and I like you. I'm reading. I read this after the fact as well. Actually, just recently, within the last year or two, for the first time, and this is the first time hearing that the turnaround was quite that fast. I'm impressed to hear that. Yeah, because as I said, it it does not show on the page. I, mean, no. I have read comics where I'm reading it, going, "This art looks rushed. You know, it's not clear. It's hard to to get in, and this is detailed. Very detailed." Uh, apparently, the Marvel offices were also calling various people to approach them about doing the cover art. And they're saying, you know, we want you to do this cover, you know, a cover for this story. And it was the first artist they called who said, I'm not doing this cover. Nobody's doing this cover. You're going to have the logo in gray and the rest of the covers black. And as soon as he said it out on the phone, I wish I could remember which artist that was. Editorial said, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the cover. And that's really the only way to do this properly. And mm -hmm. that's what they did. So I think uh, we kind of glossed over it, but obviously this issue is the aftermath of the 9-11 story. We kind of dropped straight into that without saying that, I think. Yeah. So this is, like you said, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, I don't think, I, not really him in his civilian identity, dealing with the fact that the World Trade Center has been knocked down and it's a completely civilian act. It's not a, you know... <laughs> Galactus stepping on something sort of event. Yeah. I mean, it opens with a black page of text where you hear the police scanner that Jim S. had just established as being something that Peter Parker has in his bedroom announcing the attack by latitude, longitude, date, and time. And then from there, it's Spider-Man on the top of a building looking down at what's now known as Grand Zero and just trying to cope and trying to wrap his head around it. And that's what it's all about. It starts off as a monologue from Peter Parker's perspective, but by the end of the issue, it's really JMS speaking to the reader. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally okay with that. Because this is, to me, this seems to be the, the reaction summarized I saw from the United States as a whole as an outsider, where he basically said, okay, you woke us up. You wanted our attention. You got it. You pulled us out of our little self-centered world that we're in where we're just kind of looking within our borders and reminding us that there's people out there. Well, you know what? You woke the lion and now we're looking for you. Expect mm -hmm. a response in the thunder. And it's hard to refer to the entire thing as a story because 
it's Spider-Man dealing with the aftermath, but that's not really a story. It's and it's kind of like he was saying, there are no words. There's not a story to be told here. It's not a villain that Spider-Man has to go fight and overcome by the end of the story. It's there's a tragedy that happened. Look at it. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, this is a great comic. This is, you know, it's just the Ramita Jr. art, the details, the clouds, the debris, the buildings. I was quite stunned when I saw the timeline that they published this at and realized it was a single artist the entire time. Mm-hmm. Right. If you were to ask most people today, how long would it take to put a comic together and get it on the stands working as fast as possible and keep the quality at this level? They're going to tell you, okay, the first thing you do is find like multiple art teams and have them trade off pages. Mm-hmm. But they did it. And it's a lot of this. It opens up with as Spider-Man's arriving, civilians evacuating the scene are saying, where were you? How could you let it happen? And the response is, how do you say we, di- we didn't know? We couldn't know. We couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the same world will always be vulnerable to madmen because they cannot go where they go to conceive of such things. And then from there, it's the first responders. So, yeah, they've drawn your Captain Americas, your Thors, your Daredevils, your things in there, along with the fire departments, with the other regular emergency responders, with FEMA, with NYPD. They're all there. And right down to Magneto, Dr. Octopus, the Kingpin, Dr. Doom, Juggernaut, the villains are there too. We even see, as Magneto's standing there, you know, the others are just standing there watching. Magneto is one of the ones that appears to be moving the rubble. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an excellent example of how comic books are an art form. Art forms are used to express your emotions and convey your emotions, something you can't put into words, to somebody else. And this was essentially Marvel taking their reaction to the event and conveying the emotions that there are no words for and conveying that to all of their readers. And this is a great piece of art depicting, and I don't just mean the drawings on the page. I mean, this is a great, as a whole, work of art that depicts the tragedy that everybody felt. I do think that fell down a bit when you try to reconcile it as a piece of the Marvel Universe. Like I said, I read this recently within the last year or two where a lot of the, you know, feelings of tragedy, the years have kind of dulled that. So looking at it from that perspective, you end up with, so Magneto, Juggernaut, Dr. Doom, Dr. Octopus, who everybody is, who have caused at least this level of destruction themselves without caring, suddenly stopped and decide they're going to help. And I get that they're trying to convey, you know, well, everybody did come together after this and we have to work together as a people to overcome this tragedy. And I agree. I like that. I, it's a good story. That's something that needs to be depicted. But at the same time, with the rest of the Marvel Universe, I'm not sure it jives with the stories we're used to. Yeah, it's. I frankly don't see Doom coming in person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I he see him responding. Yeah, I see him responding from Latveria. But I see him saying that was a pointless tactic. Like, Doom will cause this destruction, but part of a much better conceived plan mm-hmm. than what this was. Of that group, Kingpin I see showing up. Yes, Kingpin probably would be exactly where this was. He'd be there helping out. Yeah. Magneto, quite possibly given his history with Mm -hmm. World War II, 
in the concentration camps. Him, I buy showing up and helping. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe even Juggernaut. I, I'm a little bothered by the fact that, you know, we see a little bit of the Iron Girders levitating, which tells me Magneto's, you know, he's physically standing there, but he is active in the recovery efforts. Mm -hmm. The other guys are just standing there watching while we have Cap and Thor. But so that was a little bit off to the, you know, even seeing Doom crying. I don't know how detailed Straczynski's script was. If it was just, you know, villains are here too, and that's the way Ramita chose to, chose to draw it, because this was a, as we said, there wasn't a lot of turnaround time on this. Mm -hmm. That, it rubbed me the wrong way, but then as soon as you read the next page, it's like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with it to a degree. Like, yeah. like I said, I think a, a lot of these, and I'm going to refer to it as a story, but this issue... You need a few conceits to get the issue across. That's one yeah. of them in this one. It was a tragedy. It was a real world tragedy that, you know, humans and readers of the comic experienced and they were conveying it in the comic world to make it jive with the real world everybody's used to. Yeah. The comic world, this was another Tuesday. In a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And th they tried to pull it out in because like I said, the real world, the readers, they don't experience this. That doesn't, these events don't happen to real people. This is something you read about in comics. This is fiction. And this one wasn't. So they had to re respond to that. And this was a great way to respond to that. The problem is if you try to shoehorn that in with the rest of your fiction, it kind of casts a bad light, like on the rest of the fiction. Like, well, why isn't, you know, every other day when Galactus knocks over a building, an issue? Yeah. So th that was my mm -hmm. biggest complaint about it, but I don't. Mm -hmm. I think that's a complaint with the rest of the Marvel universe, then, not this issue. Yeah, it's the destruction has become sort of the the norm mm -hmm. in the Marvel universe up to this point as stories escalate. Mm -hmm. um, there's the sliding timelines where the Fantastic Four first went into space 12 years ago, which means they went into space after 9/11. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, but so, it's, yeah. It, it's one of the things you have to accept when you're reading the comics to get the story from it. Yeah, so it's how it fits in the Marvel Universe may not be that great, but if if you're looking for a piece of art about 9-11, yes. th this is here. I mean, as I said, the next page, even the villains kind of rub me the wrong way because they're standing there every time I read it. But on the next page when it says, you know, we are here, but with our costumes and our powers, we are writ small by the true heroes, those who face fire without fear or armor. Those who step into the darkness without assurances of ever walking out again, because they know there are others waiting in the dark, awaiting salvation, awaiting word, awaiting justice. Ordinary men, ordinary women, made extraordinary backs of compassion and courage and terrible sacrifice. Ordinary men, ordinary women, refusing to surrender. And it ends with the conversation on the plane saying, we voted and we're going to try to take the plane. It's the only way to stop them hitting Washington. I love you. And I love you. Like, this is where it is. And this covers a lot of the reaction that we were seeing. You know, with those saying, this is probably what we deserve, all of them who've tried to secularize America, the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the le lesbians and the ACLU, I point the finger in their face and I say, you helped this happen. Right. It's, you know, others were basically saying, you know, jumping at the bit saying, I'm going to use this tragedy to form my political agenda and blame them. Probably because some of these guys with these political agendas are already so irrational, everything is the fault of the other guys anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that the people, a lot of the people who are out there spouting this stuff honestly believed every word of it. Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, it is. I really like the focus that was shown directly on the actual emergency responders who were there. Yeah, they they did an incredible job of taking an extraordinary act that's not extraordinary for the Marvel Universe, but it's extraordinary by our standards and making it very real. Like, yes, Spider-Man's the one talking to you in this, and you see Magneto levitating some girders to help out with the relief effort, and you've got Thor the thing picking up, you know, rubble to clear it out. But the story is about New York and regular people and the firefighters and the policemen and FEMA and the National Guard and those people who are in there helping. And it really does, by the time you finish this issue, you're not thinking that the heroes are Captain America and Spider-Man. You're seeing it as the police and the firefighters and FEMA. Yeah. And that is as it should be, because something like this, people need to deal with it. Yes. Like, I mean, they've said for a long time after this, things just weren't funny anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the media that was being released, there was a long period with very few comedies out. Mm -hmm. Because after this happened, there was a long time when nobody could successfully pitch a comedy in Hollywood for TV show or movies, because just nothing seemed funny. Right. So it wasn't I remember, going on the air. I remember Saturday Night Live's response to this because I believe they were off the air at the time that this happened and they their next season was starting just after this. And Saturday Night Live is in New York. This it's as much a part like New York is as much a backdrop for the show as anything else. Yeah. And they started off with the mayor and the firefighters on set and uh Lauren Michaels, the producer, had walked out and started talking to me, he goes you know, what do we do after all this tragedy? Is, is, you know, can we, is it all right to do the show? Like, what are we doing? He's like, yeah, I think we need to laugh. We need to go back to kind of trying to learn to laugh again. He's like, okay, so it's okay to be funny. And he responds, well, why start now? Yeah. And that, and that was the, the icebreaker. And from there they actually go off and do the show. And that was kind of, I'm not sure if that was a turning point for everything, but I remember that being one of the first things afterwards that finally is just like, we, we can go back to laughing about things. Right. Yeah. Well, it's the same, uh, The Onion, which is mm -hmm. the well-known satirical paper, they stopped publishing for months after mm -hmm. this. And when they came back, they came back with dispatches from, I forget which circle of hell. And it was dedicated to, the entire thing was their response to 9-11. Mm -hmm. With articles like, God angrily clarifies don't kill rule. <laughs> and it's about, you know, God appearing for a press release at Ground Zero saying, Thou shalt not kill. Four words, one syllable each. I don't know how much more clear I could have made that. <laughs> you people need to stop doing this. Yeah. So good. And it was a difficult thing. So and I think Marvel does deserve a lot of credit also for, especially within a month of it happening, being able to turn around and be like, okay, we're, we're taking this head on. Yeah. I, I'm not aware if any of the other companies did something similar, but... I've never heard of it, if so. <laughs> yeah, DC did put out a 9-11 special. It was one of the ones that was free on Comixology. Mm -hmm. It took them more than a month to turn around, but it was also a rather large anthology mm -hmm. with multiple of creative teams. So I don't know exactly how long it took it. I haven't looked at that release date because I was also, well, clearly I was reading it after the fact. I've only read it on Comixology, and Comixology didn't mm -hmm. exist in 2001. Right. It was the app I had on the iPad, which also didn't exist in 2001. <laughs> But that one may have been fairly quick to turn around as well, just because it was a series of vignettes. So again, mm -hmm. it's the multiple art teams doing short stories. And Marvel kept responding. I mean, 
when I talk about how this fits into continuity, this is flatly contradicted by Captain America relaunch. That starts with Captain America at Ground Zero, so he's helping out. But in that one, he was there from the start. As Steve Rogers, it did not feel right for him to put on the costume at that moment, and that was part of the emotional arc it leapt off with. So the two issues are inconsistent, or the two stories are inconsistent. But again, as as we said, this kind of permeated culture, especially right. stuff produced in the United States for a long time, and very justifiably so. Mm-hmm. And I think this it's a testament to this issue about how strong it is, too, that, like I said, I didn't read this until within the last year or two, and it still does have that kind of emotional impact. You do still realize, you know, the horrible tragedy that was going on, and you can see in this who the real heroes are. Like, at everybody in the background you see has the FDNY firefighters uniform on. They have the uh, FEMA jackets on. You see the police officers in the background. You're not seeing you know, just your random civilians, you're not, well, I take that back, you do see a bunch of random civilians as they're dealing with the tragedy as well, but you don't see your usual plethora of Marvel characters in the background, just, you know, like Scarlet Witch standing next to Quicksilver and the Fantastic Four all chit-chatting while this is going on. You see the emergency workers and the first responders responding. Yes. And this, I mean, that was even the purpose of the call, I think, was a six-issue miniseries that came out of this as well. Mm Mm-hmm about just emergency responders, period. That's it. Marvel put out a miniseries of, you know, the people who are now clearly the real heroes. No superpowers, no bulletproof armor. It's just, you know, they're putting their lives on the line to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of that. One of the, the touches here, which again makes me wonder how many of those villains were specifically detailed by Straczynski's strip, or script, is when Spider-Man sees Captain America and says he's the only one who could have who could know because he's been here before. I wish I had not lived to see this once. I can't imagine what it is to see this twice. I just can't imagine. And Magneto was there too. And mm-hmm. at this point in publication, that was fairly common knowledge, which again right. makes me wonder, you know, what it wouldn't surprise me at all if Straczynski's strip just said, on this page, show some bad guys. Right. And we had to pick some quite clearly. And it's, I mean, the image of Doom crying through his mask is a powerful image, but as you said, is that Doom? Yeah, I'm not sure that's consistent with his character. But like I said, it it was a task of Marvel responding to the tragedy that they saw. And the point of having the villains there, they kind of, I think the last, the one of the last panels here says, because even the worst of us, however scarred, are still human. They still feel, they still mourn the random deaths of innocence, which I'm not sure is the case for these particular villains, but at the same time, in the real world, everybody, whether you like them or not, felt that tragedy. Yeah. And this was their way of conveying that. Yeah, they had to deal with it. It ends with them saying, you know, basically saying, when this happens, don't let this break you. We are going to put the pieces together, America is going to survive, and we're going to be stronger because of it. Stand tall. And that last page, which is stand tall, is a splash of the hero standing in front of an American flag. The last couple of rows are the superheroes that we've seen in this. That's where you get your Storm, your Wolverine, Hawkeye, Spider-Man, Mr. Fantastic, and, and so forth. And it's the front few rows that are FEMA, FBI, U.S. Air Force. You know, I'm seeing construction people. I'm seeing Navy. I'm, you know, I'm seeing military uniforms I don't recognize. 
probably every branch of the service being represented by someone who knows how to do that and knows how to recognize it better than I do. And hospital scrubs and... Yeah. And the, the first three characters, the front row, are, you know, New York or NYPD, FDNY EMS, and the fire department. If you want, so we got the firefighters, the police, and the emergency medical team. That's the front row of heroes in this final splash. Right. That is what this is about. I mean, we've covered the technical details. I think we've talked about how we each read this in some. The impact this had, this didn't have a significant impact on continuity as a story itself. 9-11 mm-hmm. had an impact because a bunch of creators dealt with it by writing stories related to it. So 9-11 was depicted multiple times in Marvel Comics in multiple stories. Right. And 9-11 had a significant impact on the entire, I'm an American, so you'll have to forgive me for being somewhat ethnocentric, it's bred into me, but 9-11 did have a significant impact on America and thus the rest of the world for the way we handle the rest of the world. So if you're going to make any fiction that's set in America, 9-11 is going to have factored into it. But not so much this issue itself. This is more the reaction to the event than the event itself. Yeah, and that's that's it. It's the aftermath. So if if you're looking for a comic to read to fill in, you know, explain why these characters are in the status quo in some later issue, you're not going to find that here. Mm-hmm. But this is probably one of I think fiction's most effective ways of dealing with 9/11, as far as I'm concerned and what I've seen. And I I think this does a better job than a lot of the the media, both TV and comics that I saw coming out seven or eight months later. Mm -hmm. This nailed it. And if we want to talk a little bit about the regular outlines that we have for this, get into the deeper meanings. Well, there's nothing. It's not that deep. Yeah, it it doesn't. Well, I wouldn't say it's not that deep, but the, the meanings and the feelings in here, those are deep. They just aren't buried. Like, you don't have to break the surface yeah. to get to any of them. No, yeah, there, it's nothing hidden. There's no reading between the lines. This exactly. is the lines. It, it spelled out as strongly as they could in this. I mean, that was the point of this issue. Yeah. So, when Marvel announced that they're doing the 75 Greatest Countdown, there's a lot of fan debate about what's going to make the list, what's not. This is one of the ones where I think anyone who's read it, if, if you've spent any time in or near the United States especially, is going to walk away going, yeah, that's on the list. Yeah. Not if, it's where. Yeah. And it came out, well, middle-ish, I guess. A little bit lower than the middle, and I think that's just because, yeah, a lot of people were voting for the continuity significance or the most fun they had, the ones that jumped to mind. You know, If you like your entertainment purely for escapism, you may not enjoy this issue because it is you cannot escape right. what happened here. This is going to bring whatever you feel about 9-11 right to the forefront, mm-hmm. right? Whether you agree or disagree with it, there's someone with a particular point of view telling this story who points out other points of view, whether you share the the perspective of JMS and Spider-Man or whether you're one of the pundits who says, yeah, it is the fault of the abortionists. But you're going to feel that all over again when you read this. Right. I think that's why it's on the list, because this is... I've probably read it several times over the past 10 years or so since I first read it in trade. I think I've read it about four or five times. And like I said, I'm I'm not even a member of the country that was attacked. Mm-hmm. 
and it still produces that that response. I remember we had read it. A bunch of us on Twitter have a group we call Drunk Pete, and the short version of what we do is we get together on Saturday night on Twitter and live tweet some Spider-Man comic, and it started while we were having a, a beer. So it's not it, the alcohol is not required, despite the name, but it's really just an idea of everybody getting together and live tweeting a story as we read it. And we picked this at one point, I believe it was near September 11th last year, and we read it. And by the time we're finished, this, everybody's just like, well, this wasn't fun. I mean, it's like, yeah, this is a great story. You know, you really feel it, but that's not fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's an extremely well-made comic that is not escapist in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. By the time we're done, we're like, eh, now I'm crying into my beer instead of actually enjoying it. So, I mean, there is that, and I can see why people may dislike it for that reason. But I think that also just describes how well it was done. Because if it didn't make you feel that way, it wasn't doing what it set out to do. Yeah. I mean, you might, well, for example, let's, let's take my sister. Mm-hmm. She likes all of her media to be escapist, partly because of the stress of her job and all that and everything. I mean, it's when she goes home and picks something to watch when she can watch anything, it's usually along the lines of Happy Days, Flintstones, or Gilligan's Island, right? Something that's very clear, very straightforward, maybe a little bit juvenile, or at least not as sophisticated as the, the writing now. Something where you could just turn your brain off and laugh. Mm-hmm. If she, if I were to make her read this, I don't think she would enjoy reading it, but she would respect it. Yes. Yeah. You got to respect how well made it is and how clearly it makes the point. Even if you're not going to have a, you know, you're you're not going to walk away going, "Well, that was a fun romp. Can't wait to do that again." <laughs> yeah. Right. It's more cathartic than anything. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Compare it to the the last time that Lex was on the podcast when we were discussing World War Hulk, mm-hmm. which was, you know, that produced a level of devastation in Manhattan way beyond this. And it was fun to read because it was almost entirely removed from reality. Exactly. This is not that. No. And in fact, it predates that by about six years, which points to some of the healing process because... World War Hulk would not have been told the way World War Hulk was told if it came out in 2002. And if it had come out, probably, if it had been due to launch in October of 2001, I'm pretty sure we would have never seen it. It would have been shelved and maybe reprinted 10 years later as, oh, hey, guess what we actually found? Yeah, it's it would have been, wherever it was in the production cycle, it would have been put on hold and may have shown up as a from the vault Yeah, part of that that line, if we saw it at all. Agreed. So, and that was also John Romita Jr. <laughs> on the art. So, yeah, it does indicate some of the healing process that had happened in the five to six years in between the two issues. Right. So this one, I think we could say, I think we've pretty much covered what it's about, why it's on the list. Right. I think this is a very significant issue for a lot of very obvious reasons. I don't think there was a lot that anybody looking at this issue and actually having read it would have been like, oh, is that why? Yeah. And we've seen that. I mean, we have the Facebook forum going. And I remember comments from one of the the regular guest hosts, uh, John M. Wilson was on there for one of the other ones going, okay, I just read this story. I can't wait to hear this podcast to find out why they, they think this story is on here. Because it did nothing <laughs> for me. Yes. And here, yeah, you will have people who don't enjoy it. 
but no one will question why it's on the list. Yeah. Even if you, you still have to respect it. Yeah. All right. So this I think is wrapping up what's probably our most somber episode of this entire series. So do you have any closing thoughts about this Lex or? Uh, No, just hopefully your next podcast is much more cheerful. Good luck. Yeah, well, actually, the next podcast is looking at Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Issue 50. So this is one that's been reprinted and homaged a few times. It does a couple of things in continuity that we'll discuss more next week, uh, actually with another gentleman from Horizon Labs. It has been reprinted a few times as well, including Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 8, Marvel Tales Starring Spider-Man Number 190, Marvel Masterworks Volume 22, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, and Hardcover. The Very Best of Spider-Man Trade Paperback, Bring Back the Bad Guys Trade Paperback, Essential Spider-Man Volume 3 Trade Paperback, Spider-Man Visionaries John Romita Trade Paperback, Spider-Man 2 The Official Movie Adaptation Trade Paperback, since it influenced the plotline in that movie, Marvel Visionaries John Romita Sr. Hardcover, as well as being available on Marvel Digital Unlimited, Comixology, and the GitCorp DVD-ROMs and CD-ROMs, collecting issues of Spider-Man up to that point. So, And to be clear, you're talking about issue 50, not the one from this podcast. Yeah, that's, as I said, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, issue 50 is the one that was reprinted in those places. Right. So if you want to track down next week's issue, it's easy to do at not a lot of investment on your part unless you like to have the original issues. So that one, I do guarantee, is, without getting into spoilers, it's not nearly as connected to reality. As this one is. Which is a good way for your escapism to continue. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Lex, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. Looking forward to your next trip back. Hopefully it's more cheerful. See you then. (laughs) All right. And for those listening at home, don't forget to rate this and all the podcasts that you listen to regularly on whatever feed you're getting them from. And thank you for listening. Blaine here again. This is the part where I normally do a promo for another show, typically comic-related or a show done by this week's host. Lex has no podcasts of his own, and it didn't seem appropriate to put in the promos for the regular comic book shows. I did some searching for podcasts that specialize in disaster relief, since that seemed the most appropriate. I did find one at disasterpodcast.com. They don't seem to have a promo spot of their own. At least not that I could find easily. But if you go to disasterpodcast.com, you will find their subscription feeds for iTunes, Android, or RSS. So again, disasterpodcast.com, and I hope you'll be back next week. Thank you.